Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salman, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconahai, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Iliad. Iliad, the father of Eliazar. Eliazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babel, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. May the words of my lips and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord God, our Creator and Redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm sure you find this hard to believe, but over the last few years I've become very boring. My sons have gone, you've been like that for years, Dad, yes we know, we know about that. I've become so boring that I've watched this uh, television programme, I watch watch more television these days, but uh, there's a programme called Who Do You Think You Are? Have you seen that? If you haven't seen it, uh, you're not boring yet, but you will in years to come, don't worry. But it's about, uh, it's about tracing people's ancestry, and I just find it fascinating. <coughs> Who we are has much to do with our genes, where we come from, what we've been, what our families were. Some of you want, might want to stay away from, but uh, you know, I find it absolutely fascinating. So our genealogy, our ancestral lines are extremely important. And as Jay pointed out at the beginning of the service, The Bible sees genealogies as extremely important. They are very significant. 
And this one at the start of Matthew's Gospel is just the same. It's, it's so significant. Why? Well, Matthew wrote his Gospel mainly for a Jewish audience. He wrote it mainly for Jewish people to show that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. So that the one that they have prayed for, uh, the one that they have hoped for for century after century after century, Matthew says, he has arrived. It's Jesus. And a Jew would immediately want to know from what line does this person come from? From what family is he from? If he claims to be the Messiah, or you claim to be that you claim that he is the Messiah, then he must come from the line of David. He has to. And so this genealogy would be absolutely crucial to any Jewish person. If this person can't be traced back to that line of David, to the line from which the Messiah would come from, well, forget it. He doesn't come from that family. I'm not going to read any further into this gospel. It's as simple as that. So it would be very important. And so Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. It would be absolutely crucial for his readers. And there are four things <coughs> that we should learn from it this morning. Four things. Firstly, Jesus is God's promised saviour. Jesus is God's promised saviour. Every Jew knew the family line which the Messiah would come from. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, mankind sinned against God. And so mankind came under God's judgment and was separated from God. You know that. <clears throat> but immediately that that happened, God promised to send a saviour. He told Satan in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is the first prophecy that God would send a Messiah in the Bible, that he would send a saviour. That's the first prophecy. From then on, the Bible tells how God will save his people. That's what the Old Testament is, all, is primarily about. It's showing us that we can't save ourselves, that we need a saviour. And the message that God will save through his Messiah weaves its way right through the Old Testament. And right from the start, Genesis begins to focus on one family. Out of all the nations, God will use Israel to bring salvation. And then he narrows it down even more. The saviour will come from a certain family in Israel. And it's this family that weaves its way through the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 5, there's the first genealogy of mankind from Adam to Noah. Adam had Seth, Seth, Seth had Enosh, Enoch had, Enoch had Kenan, Kenan had so on and so on. I'm not going to name the hard ones, I'm not stupid, I'm not silly. And it goes on and on down the centuries and finally it comes to Noah, verse 32. Noah, the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. That's the family. And then comes the flood, where all the people of the earth was wiped out, except this family. And then Noah has three sons, who lived in different parts of the earth, eventually becoming different nations. But it's from Noah's first son, the line of Shem, that the Messiah will eventually come. And so it's his line that the Bible follows. In Genesis chapter 11, there is yet another genealogy from Shem. Shem fathers some name like that. I don't know why they don't have names like Wally or whatever the case may be. But Aphaxad, who bore Shelah, and Shelah had Eber, and Eber had so on. And on it goes down and down through the centuries until you come to verse 24. 
They've gone down the centuries, verse 24, when Nahor became the father of Terah, and Terah, of course, was the father of Abraham. Now turn your Bibles, page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book, right throughout the Old Testament, down the centuries, hundreds and then thousands of years, on and on, into the first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Where does the genealogy start? It carries on from Genesis 11. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And so on, and so on, and so it goes. Until verse 16... Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. That's what this genealogy is all about. It's showing that Jesus came from the Messiah's family line, which goes right back to Genesis. You must never think, like I used to, you must never think that Jesus' coming was sort of God's plan B. You know, sort of, in, in the Old Testament, uh, people would be saved by keeping the commandments. It was, that, was, that was how you saved people in those days. But when that failed, well, God changed his mind. He said, well, I'll have to do something else, so I'll do it by faith. No, there's never been a plan B. Salvation through Jesus was always God's plan. It's always been God's plan. From the moment man fell in the Garden of Eden, God promised a Messiah. And he's planned and acted throughout history to bring it all about. And so this genealogy shows that Jesus is God's Messiah. Secondly, this genealogy shows that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Promises today mean very little, I find. A handshake is, used to be binding, it's now not worth anything anymore. Rosemary and I, a few months ago, decided that we needed to update our sort of... Uh, our will, we haven't updated it for about 40 years, so we thought, well, we better do something about it. And uh, so we sort of thought we should up our son's inheritance. <laughs> they now get $15. <laughs> I don't laugh, that's each. Not between, it used to be between them. But I couldn't believe the papers that we had to sign. I mean, you had to sign this one three times, and this one four times, and that one time, and then you had to do something between it. We don't trust each other. Agreements have to be drawn up. We can't trust anybody. Matthew says God sending Jesus into this world means that you can trust God. You can trust God. This genealogy shows that God never breaks a promise. When man first fell in the Garden of Eden, God promised right then that he would send a Messiah. Later, God called Abraham the father, the beginning of the Jewish people. And God made Abraham a promise, which Jay read to you at the beginning of the, serv at the service. I, I love the picture there where or he does it in two, promises it in two chapters. I love the picture where, he says, where God says, Abraham, come outside with me. Have a look at those stars. You can imagine a clean up those stars. He said, I will build a nation through you and your offspring, and they will be as numerous as those stars. Absolutely incredible promise. Now at that time, as Jay said, Abraham was old and he had no children. And so building a nation from Abraham's offspring seemed absolutely impossible. But verse 6 says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. God promised and Abraham believed it. And it was fulfilled. Abraham had a son. 
Four centuries later, when they came out of Egypt, they were a nation. Later, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David, who was then king, the king uh, he promised David just before he was king, that the Messiah would come through David's line and be king and reign forever. David also believed God. How could those two people and others believe God's promises? Well, it's very simple. They'd never seen God break a promise. He promised Abraham a son and a land for his descendants, and he delivered. He promised that David would be king over Israel and that Israel would become the most powerful nation under David. Again, that seemed impossible. It was impossible because at that time, the Philistines and the Amorites and the Moabites were the powers in the Middle East all greater than Israel, but God made a promise and he kept it. David became king and Israel became the most powerful nation in the Middle East. And here too, the coming of King Jesus, born in Bethlehem, reminds us that God keeps his promises. This genealogy goes back thousands and thousands of years, but it doesn't make any difference. If God makes a promise, he delivers he keeps it. And if you're a believer, there's a great assurance and a great comfort in this genealogy. Because the longer I'm a Christian, especially in this society, well, I'm sure it's the same throughout the world, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realise that life as a Christian is not easy. It is extremely difficult. Just keeping faith is often difficult. There are struggles and difficulties. There are temptations in the Christian life. And we often lose sight of God's promises. We doubt God. I don't care whether you've been a Christian for 50 years. We doubt God. We see things around us and we think, well, can it happen? I look at the world more and more today and I think, will this fighting and the war and the unrest and the suffering and the corruption which brings cruelty and tragedy to young people, babies and families throughout the world, I wonder whether we'll ever know peace. I wonder whether there'll be a time when there will be no pain or no hurt or no suffering or no grief or tragedy which we go through. Well, God has promised that there will be a new heaven and a new earth when there will be no more pain and there'll be no more suffering and no more hurt and when God will wipe away every tear. I remember R.C. Sproul speaking about when he was a little child and he used to run to his mother when he'd hurt himself and his mother used to take the corner of her apron and wipe his tears but R.C. Sproul said the tears kept coming back and later on they kept coming back more and more as more pain comes into the world well when God wipes your eyes you'll never know a tear again the pain and the suffering and the grief will go he also promised that in heaven we will meet again we will meet each other. The person that you lost and loved and grieved for, you will meet again. It will be a great reunion. And God will not break that promise. He'll never break that promise. So God keeps his promises. Thirdly, Jesus' coming has brought God's final message of hope. This genealogy, now stay with me here, this genealogy is divided into three separate periods in Jewish history. One, God's grace to Israel and its rise to glory. That's from Abraham to David. Two, 
the fall from that glory, David to the exile, and three, the opportunity for restoration through Jesus Christ, from exile to Christ. And spiritually, creation, the fall, and salvation in Christ has that same historic division, finishing with Christ. Let me show you what I mean. The first group of names from Abraham to David is God calling Abraham at the start of the nation of Israel. That's its creation, if you like. God chose Israel, and Israel were to glorify God and to be a witness of God's love to other nations. That's what they were to do. And by the time of David, God had brought them to be the most powerful nation, faithful to God, and Israel were to be his crowning glory. So too spiritually. When God created Adam and Eve, they were the crowning glory of his creation. They were made in God's image to show and reflect God's glory. That's what you and I were made to be. That's how we were to be. It's what we were originally created for. Made in his image, we were made to love God, to serve God, to enjoy him and belong to him. That's what we were made for. In the Westminster Confession, how many, how many Presbyterians are here? I heard one, the, the, uh, what's the name? Any, how many Presbyterians? It's all right, put your hands up, I'm not going to embarrass you. Yes, I am. <laughs> what's the Westminster Confession? What is man's duty? What is the duty of man? Man's duty is to... and enjoy him forever. Love God, worship God, and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. To glorify God. That's the first group of names. The second are those who fell from God's glory. After David, the nation went further and further and further away from God. Not every individual, but they as a nation did. Disobedience, rebellion, wanting to live without God's law, despising God. And each king, or most of the kings, it says, moved further and further away from God. And the world is in that second stage spiritually. All people are away from God. All have failed, Romans chapter 3 says. All have fallen from God's grace, just like Adam and Eve. People are away from God. Many people don't want to know God, don't care about God. Fallen from God's grace and under his judgment, just like Israel. But that's not the end. There's a third section which leads to Christ and to salvation. Jesus came to save us. That is the good news. God hasn't washed his hands of us. You needn't stay away from God. You can be with God through Christ. Jesus came to die for our sin and for our forgiveness if we will turn back to God. And so this genealogy tells us the bad news, we are away from God, but good news, it gives us hope. We can come back to God. And there are two obvious truths from this genealogy regarding hope of salvation. Firstly, Jesus Christ is God's only hope of salvation. He is the only saviour. There is no other. It wasn't Muhammad who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It wasn't Buddha. It wasn't Hare Krishna nor Confucius. They, they may have been nice people and good people. Uh, and nor was it us. I can't save myself by being good. It was Jesus Christ and salvation only comes through him. Secondly, Jesus is God's final word on salvation. It doesn't go on to say Jesus begat somebody else and he was the father of so-and-so and he was the father of so-and-so. No, it finishes with Christ. 
God has spoken his final word of hope in Christ and if a person turns their backs on him, there is no hope. I'll come back to hope in a second. But fourthly, Jesus' coming brought hope for all, for all. This genealogy would surprise a Jew because four names are women. Five if you count Mary. Rahab, Ruth, Tamar and Bathsheba. And I say that because at that time in Israel, at that time, women weren't treated well. They were often seen as a possession, certainly outside of Israel and often inside of Israel. Women's name wouldn't be normally be found in a family history line. Not only that, these four weren't Israelites. And look at the women involved. Rahab, Joshua chapter 2, was a prostitute. Tamar, Genesis 38, was an adulteress. Bathsheba, verse 6, Uriah's wife, committed adultery with David. Well, they're not your sort of Mother Teresa's, are they? You're your regular saints. And even worse for the Jew was Ruth. Ruth wasn't only not Jewish, she was a Moabite. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, no Moabite nor his descendants may enter the house of the Lord. So women, sinful women, and Gentiles. But the men are worse. I see the men going, oh, wonderful. How are we wonderful? No, the men are worse. Many of them were adulterers. Many were drunkards. Many, it says, time and time again in the Bible, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So what does all that say? It says that the gospel, eternal life, is open to all who will trust Christ. All. Gentile, slave, free, male, female, the significant and the insignificant, the prince and the pauper, the king and the road sweeper and the factory worker. It makes no difference. And it doesn't matter what you have been or what you have done. God will forgive all things in Christ. And I say that because even these days, some people that often say to me, oh, I've done something really, I've done something really terrible in my life. Well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. God could never forgive me for that. There are such people. Or people often say to me today, well, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I, I still sin. I, I'm a Christian. I still sin. God can't forgive me over and over and over again. Nothing is too great for God to forgive. That is the gospel. Nothing is too big for him to forgive. The coming of Jesus brings hope to the world. You know, I really see little hope in this world today. By nature, I'm an optimist, believe it or not. I'm boring, but I'm an optimist. And yes, there are good things in this world, but there is so much corruption, injustices, many of which we don't see. There's abuses of power and greed in the world today. And it goes so deep that it's hard to unfathom. And we don't see we'll get any justice. 
There's factions against each other. There's wars over money. There's wars over possessions. There is wars over land. Not only overseas, here. There is terrorism in the world. There is drug addiction in this world. And it gets worse and not better. At the end of the 19th century, coming into the uh, the 20th century, right at the end of the 19th century, experts on human behaviour started to emerge. You know, rational thinking, etc., etc. And they told us that all this war and all this strife and all this poverty and cruelty is due to a lack of education. That's what we were told. And so they said, educate people, and that will solve society's problems and the world's problems. And these people didn't like Christianity for some reason. And they said, all this stuff about sin and being under God's judgment and about heaven, well, that's not going to change things. All that makes, all that Christianity does is make people feel guilty and they live with pie in the sky. That's not going to change anything. And they said, get rid of those, get get rid of that kind of thinking and, and we will all be free and then educate them. And instead of fighting and squabbling and we can get round a table, we can throw our clubs away and our knives away and our guns away, we'll all be peaceful because we'll be rational people. And so education and science and technology became the hope of the 20th century. Read those philosophers at the end of the uh, the 19th century. 20th century was to be the century of optimism where people would prosper and there would be peace and everybody would be happy. What happened? Well, the First World War shattered that dream. Evil and destruction on a scale unprecedented in the world And then the Second World War, not 20 years after, six million Jews slaughtered by educated, rational-thinking people. In the last century, there never has been a time when war hasn't raged in most parts of the world. And with all our technology, with all our science and all our education, it gets worse and not better. It's exactly the same in our society. With all that we've got, with all our education... There is drugs and greed and abuse and factions. They're fighting and it gets worse and worse. Education, technology is a fine thing. Science is a wonderful thing. But it cannot solve the problem of humanity. There is no eternal hope in those things to save the world. What God has brought about in Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world. It's that baby in Bethlehem. And you can trust him. You can trust him when you can trust nobody else. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light and the truth of your word. We're sorry that we can get fooled by many things in the world and in our society and in our own hearts in one sense. But we thank you that we can come back to your word. And we thank you that your promises are true not just thousands of years ago and the next day, but they're true today and they will come to pass. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the promise of our Lord Jesus. And we do pray for this world, Father. We pray that your name would be heard, that your gospel will be proclaimed, and that people would see the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.